Revelation 12, as we left off with a woe from heaven, a woe that Satan has come down to us in great wrath and fury. And so we're picking up on that, studying what that means for the church. So go ahead and read with me, starting in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you asking that you would indeed search our hearts, that you would look into them to see if there are any iniquities that we've hidden. And Lord, we know that your word can pierce through our souls and our hearts, and so we ask that you would do precisely that in our time. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, a few weeks ago, I went away for an extended weekend fishing trip with my dad up in Idaho, where I'm from. And it was a wonderful time, full of fish and beautiful scenery, Uh, just being out there with my dad. It was a great time. But on one particular day, my dad was grossly outfishing me. It seemed like on every cast, he was pulling in a fish, and it was driving me nuts. And so on one of my casts, I throw it out there, and it's, you know, I'm throwing out a bobber, and it's coming down the river as it always does, and my bobber goes down, and I'm excited. Finally, I've got off the schneid. I finally have a fish on the line. Well, to my disappointment... It didn't move. And if you're a fisherman, you know the difference between a rock and a fish. And so I'm just down in the dumps because, okay, I'm going to probably break off this setup that I have. I'm going to have to go retie, and my dad's going to catch three more fish before me. And so I'm kind of trying my best to to get the, the lure free. And so I'm going up and down the river, letting out line, doing everything I can. And about five minutes into the struggle, my line began to move. It went down the river, up the river, started to pull line out, and last time I checked, a rock doesn't normally do that, and I pulled in the fish that came up and realized that it was a 17-pound steelhead that I had snagged through the top of the fin, and it was crazy. I had never experienced anything like that, where it took so long to figure out if it was a fish or it was a rock. Well, things aren't always what they seem. And that's especially true when it comes to Satan's warfare on the church. We may be tempted to think, okay, we look at the world around us and we don't see any devils hiding in the bush, therefore Satan isn't at work. He's not making war on the church. Or we may think, looking at the trajectory of our country, seeing the satanic deception that's leading many people astray, or we look at the countless Christians being slaughtered almost every day, and think, how is it that Christ has really won the war? We just looked at the text uh, last week where Christ defeats our great accuser. He throws him down 
But how can we say that's true when we see so much suffering in our own life, so much difficulty? Well, Revelation always pulls back the curtain on reality, doesn't it? It pulls it back and shows us how things really are. And so that's precisely what our text is going to show us, that although Satan's rage may be fierce, God nevertheless protects and preserves his church. And so we'll see all throughout the way that Satan lobs his attacks, his fiery darts at the church, but God sustains his people. So what we want to do as we walk through this text is first to see the dragon's attack through persecution in verses 13 and 14. And then the dragon's attack by deception in verses 15 and 16. And then finally, the dragon's attack continued. So first, look at Satan's attack through persecution in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so we learned last week that Satan has been thrown down. He's been cast down, defeated by Christ. And so now he's on the earth as it were, and he goes straight after the woman. He pursues her. He chases her. He seeks to end her. And that same word for pursue is what the New Testament used often about persecution. When Paul persecuted the church, it's the same word. And so this is getting at the idea of persecution. And no doubt, we can look at church history and see how Satan is persecuting the church. I have a friend on Facebook who posts almost every day a new account from persecution.org about how Christians are being martyred, blood being shed on almost every continent in our world. Certainly, Satan is behind all of these schemes to attack God's people, to seek to put them to an end so that their witness will no longer be out in the world. But however strong the dragon's pursuit of the woman is, it's ultimately outmatched by the remarkable deliverance that we see in verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. All right, students, many of you love Lord of the Rings. I did when I was your age. And... What do eagles represent in Lord of the Rings but deliverance, right? When Gandalf is in the hands of Saruman, eagles come and remarkably deliver him from Saruman's hands. And really all that J.R. Tolkien is doing is ripping off an Old Testament picture, an image. In fact, that's the very image that God uses in the Exodus, Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And scripture also speaks of a second Exodus that's described exactly in these terms. Isaiah chapter 40, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so the church, as we understand it, has gone through the second exodus, deliverance from the bondage to sin, the bondage to death and the devil. And God has delivered his people from the attacks of Satan. And yet this deliverance does result in a wilderness living, doesn't it? 
the church is brought into the wilderness where she is to be nourished. And the wilderness, as we understand it, isn't a comfortable place. It's not a place that we enjoy. It's not a place where we are to feel at home. We're not home yet in this wilderness age. It's where the times, times and a half a time. That's referring to this present evil age where the church is living out its wilderness existence. And yet, of course, this is the place of nourishment by God. This is the place where God's presence is, as it was in the days of Numbers, where God's tabernacle dwelt among the people. It's a place where God miraculously fed His children by giving them manna and quail, by quenching their thirst through water in a dry and weary land. And so, even in this wilderness wandering that we're all in, We know that the hand of God is in it. We know that he is with us. And so we can take heart in that. And it's better to be with Christ in the wilderness than to be in all of the comforts of Egypt, which will soon pass away. So the dragon's persecution on the woman only leads to her nourishment. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but this then leads to another form of attack by the dragon, doesn't it? In verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And so it says that this flood of water comes from the serpent's mouth. And that should communicate an idea that this is proceeding out of the dragon, the serpent's mouth. This is deception that Satan often unleashes in the world. We have this contrasting picture with Revelation chapter 11 where it's the two witnesses who breathe fire out of their mouth. And here Satan is coming in trying to extinguish that fire. He's trying to put it out with a flood of confusion, chaos, deception, trying to lead people astray. And after all, Satan is called the deceiver. He is the man of lawlessness who speaks out against the Most High God. From the beginning, he deceived Eve, saying, Did God really say? And so we know the schemes of the devil. And even church history, of course, confirms this reality too. Even in the book of Revelation, we see the heresy of the Nicolaitans in Pergamum. We see the toleration of Jezebel in Thyatira, and we see the synagogue of Satan in Philadelphia. Satan has unleashed a torrent of destruction in the church so as to lead people astray. Uh, It used to be one of my favorite hobbies to go to a local half-price bookstore to find good prices on theological works, find little gems in the bookstore, and You know, it it was always a fun task because you would have to weed through all of the books to find that one good Puritan preaching manual or that one good theological book that you're just glad that you have that you can bring home with you. But the sad reality is that you do have to look for it, that it's not just on every shelf, but there are countless books, countless resources that distract from the pure simplicity of the gospel. And so that surely testifies to the reality that Satan is unleashing deception in this world. And just like with God's protection from persecution, God protects his church from satanic deception, doesn't he? You see it in verse 16. 
as John pulls up on another Old Testament allusion, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Perhaps you remember the deception that marks Numbers 16, where Korah and his rebellious companions speak out against Moses and Aaron, saying, who puts you in charge? You've brought us out into this wilderness place. Are you really God's man for the job? And so they speak out against Moses. They lead people astray. And what does God do? He opens the earth. He swallows them. He sends his judgment down on them. And so you see God protecting his Old Testament church just like he does his New Testament church. And so God's truth always does abound. And in our time, of course, God has provided a number of ways that he protects his church from deception. First, he's given us his word. He's given us his word so that we can test everything according to the scriptures to see if it is so, just like the Bereans did. He's given us pastors and teachers who are entrusted with the good deposit, that they're to guard it faithfully, protecting God's sheep from wolves who will creep in disguised as sheep, trying to devour God's people. And so he gives pastors and teachers, and then ultimately, providentially, all lies will soon crumble under their own weight. Deception can only last for so long before Satan has to revive a new lie that he can convince people of. And so we always do see that God's truth abounds in every age. God will always protect his people. Yet we're encouraged, we are commended to stand, stand strong for the truth, right? We are to not buy into the latest, greatest fad that we encounter. We're not to just jump on the new bandwagon idea of Christianity, but we're to hold fast to the truth, knowing that our enemy prowls around like a lion seeking those he can devour. And so we see God does indeed protect his church from deception. But then we see the dragon's attack continued in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan's attack by deception and by persecution prove fruitless in the sense that it can't ultimately harm God's elect. And so this only causes him to rage all the more. He gets more angry more embittered against this woman that he can't seem to defeat. And so he moves on to her offspring. And all that's meant by the, the woman's offspring is those coming generations of the church. If Satan can't have this generation, then he'll, have, he'll try to go after the next one. And if he can't have them, he'll go after the, the next one. And so Satan is tireless in his warfare against the church. He never gives up, even though he is waging in a losing battle. So all the more are we instructed to put on the full armor of God, knowing that our enemy doesn't give up. He never tires. He never quits. And so we must be steadfast in faithfulness. On Friday, I took a few of our students to go play a couple rounds of paintball. And um, it was a great time, but I don't know, for whatever reason it was, either the fact that I was the youth director or the fact that I'm just bigger than everybody else, it seemed like I had a special target on my back. 
and I, I came home the next day, and I, I looked at myself, and I found all these welts all over me, and it's like, how many times did I get hit? I think Jack McCullough contributed a little bit to that, but um, it is true that Satan has a special target on the back of those who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, doesn't he? There's a special target on the back of those who remain faithful to what God has commanded. And those who often will put their lives at risk, face the most opposition. Those who remain steadfast in keeping the law will find that they have a difficult life. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face suffering and persecution. It's because Satan doesn't want this. He doesn't want us to be faithful to the commandments. He doesn't want us to keep them. He'd rather have us be half-hearted Christians, coming on Sundays, even coming on Sunday evenings, and from Monday to Sunday, just living our lives as we please. And so we do have to wonder if we don't face opposition in our life, we don't face the dragon's attack in our life, maybe he's just content with how we're living. Maybe he's okay with it. And he's on to better and bigger things because he already knows that he has you. And so heed that warning. And of course, the dragon also has an out for those who hold to the testimony of Christ. Those who go on the offensive proclaiming the light in the dragon's lair, those who preach the good news, those who declare that the great serpent crusher has broken into human history to crush the head of the serpent, Satan wouldn't want that. He wants to end that. He wants to end the witness of the church because that's where the church is going on the offensive. That's where the, the church is storming the gates of hell. And so we are to be those who Keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And as we begin to close, I just want to make a note of a couple of the causes of the dragon's fury that it actually functions as a strange source of encouragement for us. It's actually an odd place to find encouragement that the dragon is angry, but it's a sign of his defeat. We don't want a happy dragon. We want an angry one. Because that means that we are keeping the commandments and holding to the testimony of Jesus. And so if you just glance back at last week's text, the end of verse 12, we know why the devil is angry. We know why he is laser focused in on the church. Well, it's because he's come down to us in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The devil knows his time is short. He's been defeated. His reign of terror can only last for so long. The serpent crusher has indeed crushed his head. And although he is our ancient foe, he's still God's devil, as Martin Luther put it. He's still under the sovereignty of God. He can only do what God allows. And so he's angry about this. And we can take heart in that. We can find encouragement in that because we know his time is short. Those words of my favorite hymn that we're about to sing from Martin Luther, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word from heaven. That's all it's going to take. And Satan's reign of terror will come to an end. 
And God will soon do this. And secondly, we can take heart in knowing that the dragon is angry and furious because he's proven to be ultimately unsuccessful due to God's immense care for his people. That the fact that God protects his people. I mean, imagine this. That the dragon chases the woman out into the wilderness. Chases, hunts her down just to find her in the wilderness being nourished. Being strengthened. Being built up in her most holy faith. It's no doubt that Satan is in a fury and rage when God's people come morning and evening to worship him. No matter how many difficulties he has brought into their life, they are singing of the excellencies of Christ. That's a slap in the face to Satan. That's something that he hates and it makes him angry, yet this is the place where God's people are built up and strengthened and encouraged. I remember reading a story, it was a collection of stories, but one particular story of a persecuted Christian, his name was Dmitri, and he lived in the Soviet Union. And he had started a little house church, just studying the Bible, singing hymns and psalms. And the KGB found out about this, and so they imprisoned him. They threw him away, a thousand miles away, in a prison filled with all kinds of criminals and thieves. And so for 17 years, Dimitri lived in this prison. And he made it his routine, his pattern, to wake up every morning and sing his heart song to God. And all of the prison would rage They would throw things at him when he would sing. They would yell at him, try to drown him out, and yet he would keep on singing. Satan couldn't have this one. Satan couldn't destroy him as much as he wanted to. He was kept for Jesus Christ. So that's a powerful encouragement to us, that when you face the forces of the dragon, you are kept for Jesus. He won't lose his hand on you. He won't lose hold of you. He's watching over his little ones. He's protecting them and caring for them. And there's an incredible promise for us that if we remain faithful to the commandments, we hold the testimony of Jesus, that God will soon crush the serpent underneath our feet. That Satan will be nothing more than a doormat that we trample over as we enter into that celestial city. So again, Revelation 12 is an encouragement to faithfulness. Because we know that our enemy will ultimately be defeated. So let's let's pray. Father, we have need for perseverance. Lord, we are fickle. Our hearts go back and forth. Lord, we are not as strong as we think we are. But Lord, we know that it is through your spirit that you empower us for this mission, this task. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with all of God's people as we go out into our various positions in life, that we would remain faithful to you. And would you do this because of your Son? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.